Good morning, everyone. Uh, we are going to be in chapter 11 this morning, and we're actually going to be preaching through the entire, well, not the entire thing. We're going to be going till verse 14, where we will pause. And uh, this is a chapter where we could actually take some time and uh, break it apart verse by verse, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, we wouldn't have to go through this many verses, but I think to break them up would actually cause a little bit more uh, confusion, and so we're going to try to hang, uh, hang in there and walk through the whole thing. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, uh, in, instead of preaching like normal, I'm going to more walk you through it and teach it, if that's okay. Um, and uh, so I'm not going to, well, I am going to read through the fir- those 14 verses, then I'm going to go down, back through and break it up. But before we begin, what I want to do is I, I just want to go ahead and uh, give you kind of some clues or some, a, a key, if you will, so that as I read through this, you won't be, I won't have to do it over and over again, okay? So the first thing is this, is that when we read through this, you're going to see a lot of uh, odd symbols, a lot of imagery, and one of the items are the specific time frames. You're going to see things like, for instance, 1260 days or three and a half days, uh, things like that. And oftentimes in apocalyptic literature, time frames are uh, they're, they're symbolic. They're, they're not meant to be taken literally. And that is especially the case uh, right here. So what we're going to be seeing this morning is we're going to be seeing basically a description of what is going to be happening with the church from the time of the, the death and resurrection of Christ to his second coming. So that's what we're going to be investigating this morning uh, and looking at. So when we see some times like that, you're not going to be shocked about it. Um, also, when we see symbols, for instance, like the temple, or when we look at symbols such as uh, Jerusalem or the holy city, is that is hearkening back, I like that word, uh, back to the Old Testament, uh, to early New Testament times uh, with a literal temple and a literal city. However, but looking forward, that imagery is meant or intended to be uh, directed towards the church. And so when we look at those symbols, we're looking at the church at that time. And so I just want to mention those few things. We're going to be introducing a new character this morning. We're going to be introducing the beast this morning. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And so I don't think that we should have it in our minds that this, uh, you know, this like eight-legged creature, you know, crawls out of the abyss and is going to wreak havoc on all the earth. Um, and I say an eight-legged creature because I know our fascination with spiders, right? It's like arachnophobia part due. Okay, so that's, that's not what's happening here. When we see the two witnesses, uh, many individuals will look at those two witnesses and they'll think immediately that those are two literal individuals, that it's either Enoch and Elijah or it's Moses and Elijah that are going to be physically present during this time prophesying and, and, and uh, laying down waste to unbelievers that try to attack them. That's not what's happening here either. This chapter is filled with symbolism. And so that's what I'm going to try to convey. Now, through that symbolism, what is the main point of this, of this passage that we're going to be reading? And I believe it's this, is that during, during the tribulation, during the great tribulation, during this time between the resurrection of Christ and His second coming, what is the church supposed to be doing? What is the church supposed to be doing? And what we're going to see is the church is supposed to be proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
That is what the church has been commissioned to do. Now, the church has been commissioned or called to do many things, many things. But central to that calling is the spreading of the gospel. That is what we are intended to do. And so as I stand up here and preach, my, my goal as a pastor, as a preacher, is one, to preach the gospel to those who will listen. Okay, That's my number one goal. My second goal is for those who have trusted the gospel, who believe in the gospel, who have repented, my job is to shepherd those believers, to disciple the church, right? And that's my role as a pastor. But as a Christian, my role is to proclaim the gospel. So my role is no different than your role when I walk outside these doors. I'm going out and I'm proclaiming the truth of God's word to anyone who will listen by my life and by my words. And I do that by loving my family. I do that by loving my friends and my co-workers. I do that by loving my enemy. I do that by serving. I do that in so many different ways. And that's what we're aiming to this morning. So I'm not going to have a whole lot of introduction and a spiffy story to go along with this message. we got too much ground to cover, so I'm just going to bear down and uh, break into this. If you'll join me in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to go ahead and read through this text this morning. John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their, their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during those days, and they're prophesying, and they have the power of the, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street, and the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some form, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at the hour and at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Father, may we heed these words. May we understand these words. May we apply them to our life. May the church serve as the church, following the Great Commission 
that you have given us, Lord, that we might reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we not fail in this mission, Father. Father, we know and we understand and we believe that uh, not even hell will be able to conquer the church, Lord. And so we, we believe that, we believe that promise, and we believe that, um, that the church will remain victorious through this tribulation, through Christ, who gives us strength, who gives us power, and who gives us the victory. Lord, be with us now as we, re- as we study this word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If any of you all have read the Left Behind series, um, you all will remember that the story of the two witnesses was taken as quite literal um, in that. And if you also read it, you also know that that was one of the most exciting parts of the story of the book. I mean, there was a lot of wild things that were happening because the authors took this passage to be very literal. Um, that this was an end times thing. This wasn't happening during the during the age of the church. It was towards the. It was after the rapture that Christ had had raptured his church, and then these two witnesses come, and that it they follow just in line with what this passage says. However, that's a very uh, it's it's a very limited scope, if you will, if that's the way this is supposed to be encountered. And so, I believe what we're looking at here is a picture of what the church is to be doing throughout, um, throughout the time of the tribulation. So I want to walk through this passage now and describe what's happening. Let's look at the first two verses as we begin. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now what does that mean? Well, in Ezekiel and through the, through the entire Old Testament, we often see this idea of measuring. There's this aspect of measuring where uh, we find this uh, where the prophets would measure, where the people would measure. And when we look at this, the, it, it has this picture of, of running a scale, if you will. But what, what has been told to John here, what God has told John, is that it is a symbolic picture of them identifying who are the believers and who are the unbelievers. And so if you remember the imagery of the temple, that there in the inner courts, if you will, inside the temple, you had those who were believers. And then like closer up, as you get closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, you have those priests and individuals who would be performing those sacrifices. And then as you move out, you have those individuals who are faithful followers, who have brought sacrifices. You move out and you might have outcasts and further out still you're going to end up having unbelievers or gentiles well that's the imagery that's being placed here so he says measure the temple of god and the altar and those who worship there so he's saying count those count those identify those who are going to be worshiping there those are the individuals that are going to be near to me those are my people he says identify those individuals now who are those individuals here well that's the church those, are, though, those individuals are those folks who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Count those, John. That's who they are, okay? But then he says, do not measure the court outside the temple, all right? So don't, you don't need to out- identify those outside the temple because those are not my people. 
Only those people that are in the inner courts at the altar, those are the ones that are worshiping. Those are the ones that need to be measured and identified because those are my people. Those outside of that who are going to be trampling the holy city, they are not mine, but they will trample. They are going to be trampled. So what does this, what does this mean? The first thing is this, is that God has identified and protects and oversees through the sealing through the shed blood of Christ, those who are His, the believers. Now, when I say that He protects, what I mean is, is that like in Romans chapter 8, not even hell can overcome the church, all right? They may be able to hurt us. They may be able to injure us. They may be able to malign us and persecute us. They can even physically kill us, but God will protect us for eternity because we are His, we have been counted, we have been measured, we have been identified. So in, in, the, in the grand scope of eternity, believers do not need to worry about what Satan has to throw at us, what unbelievers have to throw at us, because we are God's and He is ours. Now that's something to celebrate, folks. That should give us encouragement to go out, to share the gospel, to proclaim the truth, and not fear what the world has for us. It says, Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So during this time of tribulation, this 42 months, all that is is symbolic of the time between the resurrection and the, and the second coming. During that time, unbelievers will attempt to trample the church. Are we not seeing that right now? Now, we may say, well, it's completely new. Things are worse than they've ever been. Folks, I will get, grant you, things are tough, especially in other parts of the world where Christians are being literally killed every day for their faith. But folks, this is nothing new. Rome went out of their way to persecute and to kill the church. Okay, this was nothing new, and we're going to read more into that here shortly. But they have been given the holy city to trample for these 42 months. And I will grant my authority, then it says in verse 3, and I will grant my authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So imagine that between this time, during the time of tribulation, you have the church that is there, that has been signaled, uh, uh, set aside for the purposes of God, and then these unbelievers and the world around them have come in, and they are attempting to trample the city. But then you have these two witnesses that come in here. Who are these two witnesses? Well, these two witnesses have been granted authority, and they're going to prophesy. Another thing, another way that we could say this is preach. Okay, they are preaching, and it says for twelve hundred and sixty days. Do the math there, and it, it rounds out to about three, three and a half years, right? Okay, that's where the math is, and they are clothed in sackcloth. Let's read a little bit more, and we're going to discuss who these two witnesses are. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Two olive branches, or two olive trees, and two lampstands. Well, that's a weird symbol, right, for these two guys. Now, like I've already told you, there are many individuals that take this passage very literally that there will be two Old Testament prophets that will come and they will physically stand before the temple 
and that they will prophesy for, 1200, for, the, for this amount of time, right? For 1260 days, and they will be clothed in sackcloth, which, re, which represents repentance, okay? So who are these? I don't believe that these individuals are two Old Testament prophets, whether it's Enoch or Elijah or Elijah and Moses or anybody else from the Old Testament. These two witnesses likely represent the church. And here's why we say this. Number one, it says they are the two olive trees and the lampstands. Now, this is Old Testament imagery that ties into or symbolically represents the Holy Spirit and the church, right? That's what they represent. If we go back into the Old Testament, into the prophets, we'll see that's often what that's represented as. And so that's who they are. And so they are individuals filled with the Holy Spirit that represent the church. So that's who they, this is the church, and they have been given the authority for this 1260 days to preach, to prophesy. What are they preaching? Well, they're preaching the gospel. That's what's been preached. That's what we've been commissioned to do. And so they're standing there, and they have preached. And they're wearing sackcloth, representing repentance. They have repented of their sin, and what they are preaching is they're preaching repentance and belief. And if anyone, verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, I have to admit, in the books, that was really cool because, like, fire was coming out of their mouth and stuff like that. I mean, it was like a Michael Bay movie, all right? It was like, you know, Gone in 60 Seconds or The Rock or one of those other action films, okay? Transformers, yeah. All right, that's what it looked like, all right? It was really cool. That's not what's happening here, okay? So, now, I am willing to repent of my, my incorrectness if one of you all start breathing fire, okay? If one of you all start breathing fire and stuff like that, then I'm willing to repent. But that's not what's happening, okay? This preaching, the church, if you will, as they preach the gospel, as they share the gospel to the world, two things are happening here. Number one, God is protecting them during this time. God is protecting the church during this time. Folks, it is amazing. You know, we read all these stories like Voice of the Martyrs and, and Open Doors and things like this. We read about all these Christians that are being martyred. Here's what we should be amazed at. Not how many Christians are being persecuted, but how many Christians are not being persecuted. The question shouldn't be, why are there so many Christians getting killed for the gospel? The question should be, why aren't more Christians being killed for the sake of the gospel? I believe there's two answers to that. One, there's far fewer Christians that are preaching the gospel than there should be. If you're not preaching the gospel, there's nothing for the world to kill you for. But the other is that God is protecting those who are preaching the gospel. We have been protected in many ways. But the second thing here, when it talks about this, this fire emanating from their mouth and when there's these plagues, water turning into blood and every other kind of plague, that is imagery from the plagues in Egypt, okay, when the people were trying to leave Egypt. And so what, what Christ is telling John here is that as the gospel is being preached, unbelievers 
are being condemned in their unbelief and that God is going to go to war on them and they will be penalized for their persecution of the church. Remember what was cried out from the saints below the, beneath the altar in the beginning of Revelation. They, they cried, How long, O Lord, will it be before our blood is avenged? Well, this fire and these plagues and stuff, it's not coming directly from the church. It's coming from God. As these individuals are preaching the gospel, God is going to rain down His wrath on these unbelievers. Who's protected from that? The believers. You will not have to endure the wrath of God. Only those who have rejected the gospel during this time. They have the power to shut the sky. That's, uh, that's reminiscent of what we see in the Old Testament. That, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And this is what's happening. As the church proclaims, one of two things happens. Either unbelievers come to belief or they reject the gospel and they will warrant the wrath of God poured out on them. But believers will be protected from that. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Remember I said that they are protected by God from His wrath and from the penalty of eternal death, but they are not necessarily protected from the persecution of man. Individuals will be killed. They will make war on them and will conquer them, meaning physically overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And so these Christians, the church, is proclaim, they're proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the tr truth of Jesus, and the world is coming at them, persecuting them, maligning them, and killing them. And when they kill them, and when they malign them, what happens? The world shames them for their message. They shame them. Where do I get that shame from? Because it says that they leave their dead corpses in the street, right? So especially, even now, but especially in Old Testament times, to lay a dead body in the street exposed to all the elements and exposed, basically having their dead body, that was a very shameful thing to do for the, it was not respecting the dead at all. And even today, what do we do? We take very great care of our individuals who have passed on. We take great care for them, right? We, we have these magnificent caskets. We dress them in clothes, right? They're, I mean, and not just any clothes. We dress them in clothes that, that bring respect and dignity to the individual. We put makeup on them so that they look more alive than dead. We do these things because there is dignity in human life. And so we do that to respect them and to respect others around them. To not do that brings shame upon them. And that's what's happening. The world is bringing shame for the message of the gospel on the church as they lie there. Just as an aside, which really isn't an aside, but I want to pause just for a minute. The world 
can attempt to bring shame on you for any number of reasons. They will call you out. They will make fun of you. They will make you a pariah. And folks, that's only going to get worse. But when you are covered in the blood of Christ, there is no more shame. There is no more guilt. The world can throw it at you as much as they want. But the reality is this, when you are covered in the blood of Christ, there is no more shame in Christ. There is no more guilt. Let the world leave our bodies out there figuratively and literally. Let them leave them out there. Let them make fun. Let them shame us all that they want. There is no shame for those who are in Christ. None. Because the blood of Christ takes away that shame. It takes away the sin. It takes away the guilt. Folks, we don't have to worry what the world has for us because we have Jesus. We have Christ. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The world is celebrating the death of these Christians. And we see that. We see that overseas. We see where the unbelieving world celebrates the death and the murder of Christians. When they go and they firebomb churches, when they drag women and children out and they rape them and abuse them, not because you know, of some sort of sexual fantasy. They're doing it to cast more shame on these. What is the most degrading thing that we can do to these individuals? Let's drag the women and children out. Let's rape them in front of the fathers and the husbands, and then we will kill them. We will burn the churches down. We will burn the women, but leave them alive so that they have this scar, if you will, on them. We will throw acid on them. We will do everything that we possibly can. And then we are going to rejoice over it. It's happening right now, folks. That's what's happening right now. They are celebrating this. I remember a few, uh, a few years ago, because um, you may say, well, that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that's happening in China and um, in uh, Nigeria and other places in northern Africa and stuff like that, Middle East. And so it, surely it's not happening here, except for a few years ago, uh, some missionaries went to uh, a location. I can't remember where it was. And it was reported that they were imprisoned and then they were killed for their faith. And the attitude right here in the United States was not an attitude of remorse or an attitude of grievance or mourning. It was an attitude of this. They got what they deserved. They got what they deserved. They should have known better. Now, surely missionaries can be unwise and can do things that are above and beyond their skill level or go into dangerous areas where they are not prepared. But the attitude is not one of rejoicing when they are slaughtered. The attitude is we grieve their deaths, we celebrate their ministry and their 
the opportunity for them to share the gospel, but that's not the world's attitude. Because the gospel, the gospel and those who bear the gospel are an obstacle. They are a stumbling block for so many in the world. But, verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Sort of a picture of Christ ascending, right? Or the prophet ascending. What is this? Folks, this is the resurrection of the body. This is the resurrection of those Christians who are coming, the bodily resurrection of those who are going to be with Christ. And it brings fear and dread on all the world when they see it. Now you may be saying, is, isn't that supposed to be happening at the end? Isn't this something that's, ha- is it, isn't it happening out of order? This is too soon. We're only in chapter 11. We still got like 10 chapters left. What's going on here? Remember that Revelation is not chronological, okay? So what John is depicting here, what he's being, what's being revealed to him is sort of these snippets, all right? And so all of this, this 1260 days is this period of the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, when all these Christians have been murdered and slaughtered and maligned, what's going to happen? They're going to rise, they're going to rise to new life. They are going to rise to new life where it can never be taken away from them again. And it says, they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. This is, a, this is talking about the destruction now where God is basically bringing it down. He's like, this is it. This is the end. I'm destroying it all. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. So Christ has come. He has taken his church. They're gone now. They have risen. They are gone. And what's left? These unbelieving individuals who have been judged, who have been killed, and they have experienced the wrath of God that God has protected the church from. Now, this is an odd thing that says here. It says, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. So the question is this. Did the unbelievers who remained, did they believe? Did this cause them to believe? I was reading Tom Schreiner's commentary this morning, walking through this, and as I was reading through it, um, he brought up something that I, I was trying to think of where it was in Scripture, and he brought it up, and so I was really happy about that because it was really buggy. You know, when you get one of those things that you can think of, like a name of somebody, but it can't come to your mind. You're like, you know who that individual is, but you can't really think of it. Well, I knew the Bible verse. I knew the story. I'm like, where was it where somebody gave glory to God, but he probably wasn't a believer? He brought up it was Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember the story in Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar was basically being, I mean, just God was just throwing it down, throwing the gauntlet down on Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar basically at that point just gave glory to God, right? 
it is very likely that Nebuchadnezzar did not believe. All Nebuchadnezzar was doing was recognizing where this wrath was coming from, and that is likely what's happened here. The church is gone. The unbelieving world, they've lost their chance. This is it. And now they're saying, no, now, God, now we believe. Too late. It's too late. Because that's no longer faith. It's too late. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. How can you get worse than that one? There's a third one coming, right? We're only on the second. The third one's coming. How do you get worse than that? Well, we'll see it here next week. But let me just take just a few moments as we close to apply this. What is the mission of the church? More specifically, what is your mission as, in, as being a part of the body of Christ? You all are those two witnesses. You all are the embodiment of the church. And your calling, your commission, your task, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. That is your goal. And I joke when I say your mission if you choose to accept it. Because if you don't choose to accept that mission, then you're not a believer. Because believers, that is, that's part of it. All right, When we come to faith in Christ, part of the deal is that we are going to proclaim Christ. That's what we do. We proclaim Jesus. That doesn't mean that every one of us need to be a preacher. That doesn't mean that every one of us needs to be a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or an elder or a women's minister or a worship pastor or whatever. But it does mean that every one of us are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian this morning, the gospel should be on the tip of your tongue ready to share it with anybody who, is, who will listen. Share it with those who won't. You never know what kind of seed's going to be planted. That is our task. Because there is going to, folks, you all have the privilege right now of residing in a time where Christ is ascended into heaven and we've been given the full counsel of God in His Word, you have been given the privilege of proclaiming that gospel while there is time. And there will be a time when it is too late. There will be a time where there will not be any more time to do this. The door will shut on history. The church will reside with Christ and unbelievers will be on their knees professing Christ but not receiving anything in return. Everyone will bow a knee to Christ at some point. Is it now or will it be when it's already too late? Christ came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. 
and we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all failed dramatically. I have. You have. Everyone has. Everyone has. But there is redemption in Christ if we repent and we believe. And you may say, I'm not like those Christians. There is no way that Jesus will save me. I'm just too rotten. There's just too much sin. Folks, you can't out-sin the grace of God. You can't do it. There is no one beyond the length of God's arm to save. You say, but I don't look like those Christians. I don't dress like those Christians. Or I don't talk like those Christians. I don't even know what that means. Honest to goodness, I don't know what, those, what that means. Here's, here's, here's what it takes. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that He has died for your sins? Do you believe? Are you willing to turn from your sins to Jesus? And if you are, then you're saved. It's not magic. It's not some sort of it's not some sort of, there's not like some sort of regimented thing. It's not like you got to join a social club in order to, to gain Christ. It's not like a series of steps that you got to go through. And let me just tell you, there is no magic prayer. There is none. Why don't I have people walk in an aisle? Because it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Why don't I lead people in these, like, the sinner's prayer and stuff like that? The sinner's prayer is great. I've said it. I still say it because I'm still a sinner, and I pray to the Lord. But, look, folks, let me just tell you, there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible because there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Only Christ can save you. Do you confess Jesus with your mouth? Do you believe in your heart? <coughs> the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Do not tarry. Do not tarry in your calling. If you are a believer this morning, do not tarry in sharing the gospel. We should want as God wants for all to come to salvation. In Christ. That should be our desire. And we have been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. You know what that means? He says, go everywhere to share the gospel. What does that mean? Well, first of all, God's not wasting your time. That means there are sheep out there to gather. Go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel. We're not picking and choosing. Doesn't matter what they look like, what they sound like, nothing. All that, none of that matters. There are sheep out there. Go get them. If you are a believer this morning, do not tarry. Because the Lord may not tarry. Number two, if you are not a believer this morning, do not tarry. Do not tarry in sin and unbelief. Repent and believe in the name of Christ. Why? Because the Lord may not tarry. Folks, I have a deer, a really nice deer. I shot it yesterday. 
You knew I was, Crystal knew I was going to bring this up in the middle of the message. I can't help. I'm proud of it. It's hanging outside, ready to go to a butcher, I guess. Okay. Why do I bring that? I'm really looking forward to that. But if Christ comes beforehand, and he very well could, forget about the deer. I want to be with Christ. Now, I know that's a goofy, goofy little thing, but it's true. Christ, we do not know the day and the hour, so it's time to get to work. We have got to get to work. I believe one of the reasons why we are not pressed for time, that many Christians are not pressed for time, is because we really don't believe that Christ is going to come in our lifetime. But as I close, let me say this. Many of us don't believe that Christ is going to come in our lifetime. But don't you know this, that there is going to be a group of Christians at some point, and maybe it's us, who don't believe that Christ is going to come in their lifetime, and then He will. Folks, I'm going to tell you, I pray that it's us. I look forward to the day to see Christ coming on a cloud. I hope that you do too, and I hope that you're ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us, encourage us, and give us the the motivation and sense of urgency, Lord. to go out and preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to teach the gospel. Folks, if there, Lord, if there, is a, if there is someone or multiple someones that, that just don't believe, and maybe it's because they believe that there's time. None of us know the day or the hour. No, none of us know when our souls are going to be required by the Lord. May we turn to Christ now. If there are believers that are, that are lackadaisical in their calling to share the gospel, may we not wait. May we be pressed with an urgency to preach and teach the gospel so that the lost might be saved. And Father, may we never fail to worship and to celebrate what Christ has done. There is no other name by which we may be saved other than the name of Jesus. There is none but Jesus. May we believe that and live that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.